be holy. We want to act holy. We want to live holy. And so we need your fire. We need that refining work in our life that is sometimes very painful and uncomfortable. And, and other times it's just like the breath of fresh air. And, and it's, just, it's just so easy and, and we walk into it. But, but we need that. We're so thankful that ours is a faith where you accomplish the work. And so all that we do flows out of what you've done for us. So when we, when we preach, when we talk, when we think about life, we don't start adding up good stuff that we've done and said, now I'm spiritual. Uh, we, we, we do this in response to what you've done for us. Fruit that flows from a life that's truly abiding in you. So I pray that as we hear your words this morning, that... Again, they wouldn't be words that would help us pat ourselves on the back and tell us we're doing good or tell us we're not doing good and we ought to feel terrible, uh, but, but that it would show us how to love you better. Help us understand how to do that. Thank you for this morning. I just pray that the words that are about to be shared would be spirit-controlled, spirit-filled words. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Kids, Children's Church, you are dismissed now. For those joining us from warmer places, welcome back. I don't know if I said that last week or not, but we weren't jealous of you at all this winter. (laughs) Did I just lie on the stage? Is that what I did? It's not good. It's not good. Not a good way to start. So, I had a I had a blast this week. I got to uh, be in Chicago for two days at Willow Creek doing uh, KFO. It's it's the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit, and it's like you get together with like twenty seven hundred other people that that love orphans. Either they've adopted or you know they were adopted, or they're ministry leaders that want to do more with that in the church. And it was it was a blast. And I met up with uh, Pastor Daniel, who uh, helped Christy and I when we were in Uganda. He, he's a pastor from Uganda. He was there. Uh, he was speaking to the, at, at the summit, and he was also taping an interview for Family Life Radio. So if you hear of a Pastor Daniel Kagwa on the radio, uh, that's the guy that, that was a huge blessing to Christy and I while we were um, out of the States last year. So anyway, um, amazing story, too. It'll, it'll move you to tears. Um, and then I also saw my cousin. I didn't even know he'd be there. Uh, he was he works for a adoption organization called Life Song, and uh, just ran into him, you know. And that was that was kind of fun too. So um, this morning I want to do part two of discipleship. Last week was what is a disciple, and this week was how do we make disciples. So I'll start on a very uh, maybe a negative note. Um, I don't know about you, but. I, I never, ever get over the shock, the, the dismay. The, I, I don't understand this at all. But I know people that, and you know people that have tasted the faith, tasted Christianity, and at some point down the road, they just walk away from it. There was a young guy who was in my youth ministry and... Uh, he's just an awesome young guy. I mean, he kind of liked extreme things, extreme sports. Uh, he was a hunter and a fisherman, loved the outdoors. And I, we would go to the conferences together, and I was investing in him. And he, uh, he, would, he would tell me things like when he heard about the uh, plight of, of different people, you know, like, like sex trafficking and, and some of these horrible things that, that are done to uh, kids and young women, and his heart was like, we've got to do something about that. And he's thinking about this. And I thought, I wonder what God's going to do with him. Because he definitely has this, this extreme edge to him. And, and, and he's talking to me like, this, this could be something, you know. And, and, but the other part of it was, he always struggled with this idea that there are unreached people groups that have not heard the gospel. And how is that fair that, that God might hold them accountable for something they've never heard? And he wrestled with that. And we, we had these con- long conversations. 
as he tried to work this through. And I kept thinking, everything seems to be revolving with this young man around missions and reaching people and going somewhere uncomfortable. And, and I saw him praying. And by the end of it all, he just walked away from the faith. Just, just walked away. And, and I'm going to go on, what happened? I mean, I, we tried to talk these things through, and, and I'd see statements from him online, because young people sometimes like airing their, their thoughts on, on Facebook, and he was one of those guys that did that, and just, and, and so he kind of listed his problems with the faith, and, and at the very top was, I just don't see how God can send people to hell. I, did, I just struggle with that, and, and I can't get behind Christianity. You know, and I'm like, oh, this goes all back to the things we talked about, and he never never worked them through, and yet there was so much about Christianity that he was attracted to, like helping the vulnerable. I mean, that was huge for him. That's one story. And then this week, I'm at the conference, and I checked Facebook, and it had a link to a blog of a friend of mine, a guy that I'd stayed at his family's house before, and he chronicled his departure from the faith. He's about my age. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, I want, I want, it, I want you to tell me what happened. And, and as he's writing in his blog about it, I'm reading it going, well, there's little things I don't agree with that you've said. Like, he talked about how the Bible disagrees with itself, and it can't hold up. And, and I'm like, I, I, I strongly disagree on some of those things. But a lot of what he wrote was like, yeah. That's what the Bible teaches. Again, this struggle with, with hell, the struggle with God would wipe out the world, you know, with a flood and only save a small group of people. That's a loving God. And he's listing these stories that he just has a huge issue with, often flowing out of the same, the same thing of God's judgment. And I, he can't handle it. And I'm guessing you have some stories like that too, of people that... And again, I just don't understand it. I, don't, I understand the argument. I understand the difficulty of hell and judgment and unreached people groups. I understand how difficult that is. But what are you, I want to say to him, what are you trading that in for? You know, what, What's the better alternative out there? What truth have you found that is better than what you've experienced in the, in the church? And, and then the really mean side of me that I want to keep in check wants to wants to say, do you understand that Jesus said things that were like, we're judged on the basis of the revelation we've received? That, that it's harder for people that have, that, have, that have heard the word of God and rejected it than those that have not heard and don't have a lot of light? Like that just, that just, Jesus said if the miracles were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, right, they would have turned, right? So um, I struggle with that. And then I, I received an um, a email link from uh, Rob Ribby. We were communicating, and he sent me this thing on uh, a, a survey on the Bible, a Barna survey. Uh, they surveyed 1,000 people by telephone and 1,000 people by um, Internet. And they had these results on how people view the Bible today. I'd like to show you a couple images of what that survey concluded before we get going here. Can we get the first image? Um, <clears throat> this is an interesting one because the, what they found is we have an equal number of Bible lovers and Bible skeptics in the country today. Now, an engaged person, 19% of people were what they would consider engaged with the Bible, meaning they read it four times a week at least. It's the inspired word of God. It's all good. 19%, though, they found were skeptical that this might not be the Word of God. We have big doubts about that, and they don't read the Bible and, and, and very skeptical. So we're kind of going, we're not going the middle ground of maybe I open the Bible once a week, or sometimes I read, sometimes I don't. But, but those that are really engaged and those that are really skeptical, and they're kind of equal. Next slide. Um, then they talked about the percentage of people that are likely to view the Bible as a sacred text. And, and in 2011, they found 86% of responders would view the Bible as a sacred book. That's down to 79% this year. That's not, that's not a, maybe a huge difference, but it is a difference. 
Um, and then it's kind of hard to see that uh, next one. So I'm going to pull it up on mine. Make sure I'm... Uh, the middle graphic is 4.7 Bibles in the average household. Um, I think that's what that is. Uh, and the good news is 50, 56% of Americans remain pro-Bible. Um, it's the inspired word of God without errors. Um, they're, they're generally positive. The uh, 88% is households that own a Bible. That's what that is. And 37% of Americans read it once a week or more. So, next slide. Bible readers who say their number one frustration is never having enough time to read the Bible. Okay? 2013, 40% of people said they don't have enough time. That number's risen to 47% in 2014. Not enough time. Uh, tablets and smartphones for Bible searches rose uh, 2011, 18%. Now you know there's tablets everywhere, so of course we're up to 35%. But interestingly enough, people still prefer to read the Bible in print. 84% say print Bible's the best, 10% digital, that's your tablets, 5% audio. Okay? Next slide. This is very interesting to me. Now think about this. Uh, why do you go to the Bible? Why do you read it? In 2011, 64% said, the Bible brings me closer to God. In 2014, that number dropped to 56%. On the increase is, the Bible helps bring me comfort and solves problems. 26% 2011, increased to 32%. So, so you've got this, I read for me, that's increasing, and I read for God, which is decreasing a bit. Is that my last one? Do I have one more? One more. All right. And lastly, uh, 81% of Americans believe that the values and morals of America are declining. And uh, so that, that's a huge agreement there. You know, our morals are going downhill. And in 2013, 32% of people said, that's because people don't read the Bible. If they did read and follow the Bible, it'd be better. In 2014, that dropped a bit. Bible reading won't solve our problems. In fact, what they said this year on the increase is, let's blame music, movies, and TV. And while 50% of all Americans believe the Bible has too little influence on society, only 30% of millennials age 18 to 29 believe this. So it seems like we're on a downward turn on how people view the Bible. I mean, it's still a book that's highly respected, but but we're seeing an increase in this, I don't have time, it's not really going to help. And other people that say, I don't read it to connect with God, I really read it just because I need help with life. It's really just about me. Which on the one hand is like, I'm glad you know the Bible has answers for you, but Ultimately, it's God's revelation of himself. Ultimately. It's not a self-help book. So, all that to say, I want to talk about how do we make disciples? How are we doing making disciples in the church? People that love the scriptures, love the Lord, dig in, Find time. Don't say, I'm too busy to open my Bible because I've got this going on, this going on, this going on. I mean, I know the schedules because I'm in it too. So I, I get it. I've got a lot going on. But do we, are we raising young people? Are we raising up Christians that love the Lord, love the Scriptures, and are living it out? Jesus said, and you know these words in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That's an easy one to quote because I've read it so many times and thought about it so many times. When I was in, when I was in uh, college, my professor handed out this IRS form and gave it to the class, and it was a Great Commission exemption form. It was a joke, okay? Uh, and uh, I'm not going to give you one, but, but that was in my uh, personal evangelism class. And I think 
that scripture, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, the, the, the force of that command is make disciples. It's not the going, because it's actually as you go. That's a better translation. As you go, make disciples. So wherever you go, whether it's here or overseas or anywhere, and I know that the Great Commission is a call to, uh, to evangelize the world, evangelize the Northwoods, but it's also a call to raise up, make disciples. Not just get them saved and trust that they'll do okay, but to actually make them and build them. One of the things that's troubled me is when people respond to the gospel here, and that might be some of you, almost never do people ever take me up on discipling. We want to disciple you. you know, so fill out the connection card. They don't do it. I'm not going to stop saying it because I believe in it, but it's forced me to ask the question, if people won't say, I want to be discipled, and maybe that's in their heart, maybe not. I can't speak for people's hearts. What are we doing as a church to disciple other people? What are we going to do about that? Okay, what I want to do then for the rest of our time is answer, try to answer that question. Um, I just quoted the Great Commission for you. Uh, Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Three things that I want to talk about kind of flowing out of that, out of Jesus' ministry. My, I have an assumption, and see if you agree with me on this, that when Jesus said to the disciples that day, go and make disciples of all nations, when, when they heard him say that, his last words before ascending back to heaven, ascending to where his Father is, when they heard him say that, my assumption is they knew how to do it. Do you, do you think I'm right about that? That when he said make disciples, they didn't say, we need to hold a conference now and figure out how to do this. We, we, need, we need to call, have a seminar on how to make disciples. It's going to be led by Peter. I nominate Peter to lead that. I don't want to do, you know. I, I, I don't think that they had to discuss in depth, how do you do it? We do that today, though. Today, I've seen, and I've tried to read a lot of them, uh, books on discipleship everywhere. I just read Discipleship, uh, Jim Putnam, excellent book on discipleship. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Multiplying a little bit here by Francis Chan. Uh, I mean, they're just, they're just everywhere. I'm interested in reading Dan Spader's book, uh, The Four, uh, Four Chairs of Discipleship, coming out this, later this summer, I believe. Dan Spader worked for uh, Sun Life Ministries. Some of you know that youth ministry organization. Uh, so, so a year ago, Free Church Conference, it was on discipleship. The one this fall, I believe, again, is going to be on discipleship. And I feel like the church, especially the EFCA, our denomination, is asking the question, how are we doing making disciples? They're sending me these church health surveys and, 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 and asking hard questions like, how many people that you led to Christ do you know are discipled? And I'm trying to answer this. Okay? It, it seems like it's out there. And it's not assumed that we know what we're doing as a church. That's what I feel like. It's not assumed that the most important thing that we can do, make disciples, it's not assumed that we know, have any idea what we're doing. And I'm not saying that the EFCA is looking down on us because of that or, or any, any book writers looking down on us. I just think the church is starting to have this longing for how are we doing making disciples? Are we winning? And then we see people walk out the door. We see Bible desire go down, especially in millennials, 18 to 29-year-olds. And we go, what's going on today? My assumption is, that when Jesus said, make disciples, Peter looked at John and said, I know what we need to start doing. We need to start doing exactly what he did for us with other people. That's my assumption. Okay. How did Jesus disciple people then? What are some broad strokes, this is what he did, and, and we, need to take, we need to take note of it? Number one, 
Discipleship is missional. Now, missional is a buzzword in the church today. All I mean by using that word, I'm not trying to use it because it's trendy. Uh, there's a lot of book titles, missional. I'm using it to say, discipleship's the mission. Discipleship is the mission. The mission is not only to share the gospel with people you know and then see them pray a prayer to receive Christ. That's part of the mission. The other part of that is, how are they going to start growing now that they've accepted Christ? Discipleship is the mission of the church, is what Christ has called us to. Discipleship is the mission. Um, let's keep moving. I, th- I, think I've, I think I've already demonstrated that, that the disciples would have heard Jesus say it. Uh, let's say one more thing about Matthew 4.19, though. This is kind of interesting. Uh, Matthew 4.19 is Jesus' famous words to the disciples, Come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. That's very similar to our mission statement as a church, if you think about it. We exist to connect people to God through Jesus Christ, grow to be like Christ, and serve others. Connect, grow, serve, right? Jesus says, follow me. That, that, that's a leaving the nets behind statement. And we know that when we follow Christ, we have to leave uh, sin we have to leave uh, uh, maybe previous religious ties. If, if you were a Muslim, you've got to leave that behind. If you were an atheist, you leave that behind and, and you embrace Christ now. Follow me, he says. We connect people to God through Jesus Christ. And then he says, I will make you. I will make you is a statement of growth. Do, do we grow because we try harder? No, we grow because Jesus is making us. Fishers of men. He's, he's, he's transforming us. And I'll get to transformation in a minute too. And he says, I'll make you what? I'll make you fishers of men. Fishers of men suggests that we are engaging with people that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We exist to serve others. Both in a physical way and in a spiritual way. We're fishers of men. We want to feed people uh, with, with physical needs and feed them with the living bread as well. So I, I think that statement, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, really fits well with what we're trying to do as a church. This is the mission. Okay? Uh, it, it's not just get people saved and fill up the pews. It's I care about you getting from point A, new Christian, to point B. I care about you getting from uh, whatever point, point D to point H. You know, wherever you're at in your faith, I want to come alongside you and be part of that. It's the mission. Secondly, though, Jesus' discipleship with his disciples was, number two, relational. It was relational. When he said, follow me, he was inviting them to travel with him across the country, hanging out with him. We talked about last week, right? You follow your rabbi, and as the rabbi kicks up the dust, it starts caking your face, you know? And, and to be covered in the dust of your rabbi was a privilege. To eat like your rabbi, talk like your rabbi, be like that rabbi, that was what you were trying to do. It was, but it was a relational sort of thing. It was very relational. And so I say, if, if discipleship is just about you opening your Bible, by the way, you should be doing that, that's part of your discipleship, but if that's all it is, just you and the Bible, you and God, you're missing something. How many of you can demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit only between you and God? Have you thought about that? Some of you say, and it's, a, it's kind of a joke in the church, so many people have said this to me, you know, I'm not going to pray for patience because when you do that, God sends someone into your life that you have to be patient with, right? You know, so don't pray for patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, though. And the only way you can demonstrate it is if you have a relationship with someone difficult. And so why is it that when it gets difficult in the church, we tend to look for another church? Because the relationship got kind of hard. Okay? So, so maybe our leaving the church is a deeper discipleship issue, right? I just can't deal with this person. I'm not going to exhibit patience with them. I'm out of here. Or I'll just try to avoid them. They got, they got into my small group. Who let them into my small group? I've got to find a new small group. Right? Oh, you know, how are you going? So I'm thinking, how many of the fruits of the Spirit 
can you do by yourself? Can you love your neighbor by yourself? No. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. Some of those things are kind of between us and God, but so many of them are how we do life together. And so discipleship has to be in relationship with other people. I think uh, a thing of the past was that you do discipleship in a classroom, right? You'd sit in a class and you would learn. But that doesn't mean that you have relationships that are being built up in that classroom. Now, you might. But if it's academic, you might have the head knowledge, but you don't have these relationship things where you get to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's just you learning. And on Sunday morning, as much as I love what happens downstairs when you're having coffee and talking, and, and that's really good, it's very easy then to come to church And if you want to walk right out the door, you can get right out the door before anybody catches you. My family growing up did that for years. Hope they don't hear me say that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay. Shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. Um, But but they like to leave. That's just what we did. We left. The church is over. Um, Disciples. I got derailed there. Discipleship is, I'm working through my childhood issues. Can you see that? Just give me some space. Give me some space. Working through them. Um, But you can hear a good sermon, of course, and say, that was awesome, I loved it. People need to hear that. I'm going to send them the link, you know. And, but, but that doesn't mean it's going to change you. When we, when, where you see it change is when you're in relationship with other people. Okay, Jesus had different relational categories in his life. You all know this, but I just want to point them out for a second, right? <clears throat> um, in, in your notes you have the 72 Remember when, excuse me, remember when Jesus appointed 72 people in Luke 10.1 and they, the 72 would go out and get other towns ready for his coming. Now, we can't, we can't really do the 72 in, in the same way today because Jesus isn't traveling around the Northwoods and we're not preparing the way that way. But we are gathering together in a larger group. There were 72 of them that Jesus picked out from a larger group that he was investing in. That's kind of similar in size to you all right now. It's a larger gathering for the purpose of following Jesus. Okay? Secondly, you've got the 12. You've got the 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 13 says, When morning came, sorry, uh, that was after a night of praying, Jesus called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So he chose 12 guys to be with him, travel with him, to be apostles. And he wanted to invest in them. This is similar in size to our community groups, our small groups. You get couples together, husbands, wives, singles. You got about 10, 12 of them in the same room. And and, and they're growing together. They're doing life together. Kind of like the twelve. And then you've got the three. Who's the three, right? You know. Peter, James, and John. Who gets to go up on the mountain and see Jesus shine in all of his glory at the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. They were told not to speak about it, otherwise I could see them coming down the mountain and say, you won't believe what we saw. I can't tell you about it. can't tell you what I saw. But, But they got to see Jesus in all of his glory. Sometimes Jesus did miracles. He would go into someone's house. He's going to do a miracle. He'd invite Peter, James, and John in and nobody else. So you look like the other, you know, the other nine standing outside the door. What's going on? <laughs> Have you thought about that? Right? I mean, jealousy. I, I don't know. I don't know. And then, and then James and John, of course, have the audacity to ask to sit at his right and his left. You know, we're already kind of in, right? So we might as well go for it. Uh, Garden of Gethsemane, right? Peter, James, and John, you're with me. I need you to be praying with me. You need to be praying for yourself that you don't fall into temptation. And then he gets up and they're sleeping. Can't, can't you guys keep watch with me for an hour? Can't, can't you do this? And you can see Jesus' heart like, you're my closest people. And I can't even count on you to pray with me in the hour that I need it the most. 
Do you have a Peter, James, and John in your life? People that you connect with on a deeper level than anyone else. People that you are investing in them and they are investing in you. You could call them up at 2 a.m. and they would listen to you for an hour and then pray with you and not just try to get you off the phone. You know, how many 2 a.m. friends do you have? And that's what I think discipleship, that's where I think discipleship needs to be going in the church. That I'm investing in a few people. We have small groups, although we need to build those up as well. I'm doing a small group training right now. Um, and I think that's something we have to keep prioritizing in the church. But I also think we need to prioritize these smaller groups that invest in each other and get real with each other. I have a problem. And maybe I'm not going to tell my small group because it's a mixed group of people. There, there, there's women in there and men in there and, and some people. But i got a couple guys that I can tell anything to. I mean, that's the kind of thing I think we need to go towards as a church. That's relational. Um. Okay. Lastly, I think when Jesus said, go make disciples, the first disciples knew that that meant getting transformed. Discipleship is transformational. It's transformational. Luke 6.40 says, A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. You'll be like your teacher. So, so the focus, if you were getting into a discipleship group, a small group of you to hung out together and did life together and talked about Scripture and Jesus together, the focus is not on, uh, on, on a person. The focus is on, on Jesus. We want to be like him. Paul says we're getting transformed into his image. That's the purpose of our life, to be transformed to be more like Jesus. And so transformation is certainly what Jesus is talking about here. That was the Jewish culture. You wanted to be like your rabbi, talk like him, act like him. And we want to do that too. We want to talk like Jesus and act like Jesus. We want to be transformed. Do you ever look at old pictures of yourself sometimes? On Facebook, they have that Throwback Thursday. Have you heard about that? It's like, what is that? It was uh, TBT, right? Everybody's saying TBT. Like, what is that? So I'm, I'm, I'm typing it in because i got to know what it is. Throwback Thursday. Post an old picture of yourself. You ever looked at old pictures of yourself and thought to yourself, that guy didn't know anything, you know? You ever do that? You look, look at your old wedding picture and, and maybe you look at it and you go, that moment when we walked down the aisle, we had no idea the challenges we would walk through in life together hand in hand. We didn't know that day. All we knew was we loved each other and we were going to get through it together and with the Lord. That's all we knew. You know, we had no clue. I look back at old ministry pictures of me and like, oh, I would have done that differently, right? Oh, if I only would have known what I know now, Right? And maybe the encouraging part is, if you look at those old pictures, you can see that you are different. You're different. You think differently, you talk differently, you act differently. And you have those stories, because sometimes you tell them to me. I used to be like this. That's the transformation that I believe happens when we're doing this life-on-life discipleship thing. When people can point out to you, you know... How will you ever see your own pride unless a trusted friend says, Hey, you are, that statement was so arrogant. How will you see it if someone doesn't point it out to you? And how can someone point it out to you unless they're in a close relationship with you where you trust them and they trust you? How's that going to happen? If money starts to wrap, its, get its grip around your heart, as we talked about last week, we don't hold our riches as if they're riches. We hold them as if they're God's resources, right? That's what we said last week. None of the things I have are riches. They're just stuff that God has given me, and he can take them or he can give them to me to enjoy in a certain way, but they're all his. They're not riches. How would you know if you start showing greed 
which Jesus says it's so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, how would you know if that's you? Well, you say, my bank account shows I'm not very rich. That's how I know. Well, that's easy, right? (laughs) But for those of you that have uh, uh, a large enough bank account where you say, yeah, I got some resources here. Dare I call them riches? How would you know if those things are wrapping their way around your heart unless someone that trusts you and you trust them says to you, this is getting a hold of you. Okay. Finally then, uh, how do we do this? How do we do this in a way that is both reportable and reproducible? Because, I mean, EFCA is asking me, Who's getting discipled in your church? Vision statement for the EFCA right now is to rate, that God would raise up 1 million disciple makers discipling 100 million people. That, that's the vision statement for the EFCA. God would raise up, and I'm reading this going, raise up suggests that they're not there right now. But they need to be raised up. God would raise up 100, uh, 1 million disciple makers And the discipling multiplication would equal 100 million disciples. Now, I'm not hung up on numbers. All I know is that's what we have to get really good at in the church. I want to be able to report that. Here's what God's doing. But even more than that, I want to be able to reproduce it. I think it has to be a reproducible process. Like, anybody can say, that's how you do it. I know how you do disciples. It's just like this. Because that's what Peter, James, and John could say. That's what Andrew could say. Jesus did it with me. I'm going to do it with somebody else. That's how it is. Here's my best shot, my best crack at a reproducible process that you might use, any of you might use. A in your notes is you ought to pray about whom you should be in a discipling relationship with. That's what Jesus did before he chose his 12. He prayed the night before. Spending the night in prayer, just awesome. Like you're Jesus, you're omniscient, right? You don't need to pray, right? And yet you do. <laughs> well, I guess he did need to. So, so, so pray about who you should be in this kind of relationship with. B, ask one to three others to be in this kind of discipleship group, even if it's one person. I know schedules are crazy. I get it. That's what the survey said. We're too busy to read our Bibles. And I'm sure we're too busy to disciple each other. I'm sure of it. I just don't care. I just don't care. Even if it's one other person and you say, an hour a week, we can hang out. We're not trying to make it complicated. I know if we get four people, we've got to work out four schedules. Okay, if that's the problem, then, then make it work. Make it work. Have someone speak into your life. You that are mature in the faith, that have walked with Christ for years, I'd love for you to be able to answer this question when I ask you, who's your three? Who's your Peter, James, and John? Or just give me a Peter. Give me some brash young guy that talks when he shouldn't talk and, and chops off people's ears when he shouldn't. Tell me who you're investing in that needs that refining in their faith. They know a lot, but they know enough to be dangerous. And they need your refinement. C is choose your study. Choose your study. I'm suggesting uh, a book to you today. I'm suggesting the Bible primarily because there's no other way to get transformed if you're not in your Bible. you You can't do it. It's the means, it's the word of God, it's the truth. All scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I mean, no other book can be called that. That is the book. We use the Bible. I'm suggesting multiply as a way to help you get into the Bible. Multiply is a book by Francis Chan. It's free online. I've given you the link. You can download it. They've really put their money where their mouth is and said, we're not writing this so we can get rich. It's completely free in PDF form online at the the link I've given you in the notes. But if you want it, I have copies for it in the foyer as well. Um, What he did was he wrote a 24-chapter book, 24 sessions that you could do with someone in a discipling relationship. The first three sessions 
are on why discipling is important. And I read them, and you know what I thought? My first thought was, I have to confess it, might as well be real, honest here. For, in, in the first three sections, he's talking about us having a disciple maker's heart. Like, who do you want to disciple? And I'm thinking, if I'm discipling a new believer, why do they need to read about discipling other people? That was my thought. Let me say it again. My thought was, why do new believers, if they're going through this book, need to read about discipling other people and having a heart for that? Well, duh. Because one of the first things they should start doing is investing other their friends that are unsaved and seeing them get saved and investing with them too. So you've got three sections on discipling people. How do you do it? The heart of a disciple maker. Then you've got three sessions on what is the purpose of the church, both locally and worldwide. That's pretty cool. Uh, and then you have three sections on how do you study your Bible? How do you do it? What method are you going to, how are you going to understand what it says? How are you going to protect yourself from uh, opening, uh, opening a page of the Bible, putting your finger on it, say, I'm going to do that, you know, and just reading it out of context? Three sessions on how do you read your Bible. And then the last 15, if I'm doing my math right, are the storyline of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, section by section. So you get an overview of the whole storyline of the Bible and what it means to us as believers. At the end of every section, he suggests how you can pray through the material. So you're learning to pray. I, as I read this, it's challenging for me as a believer a little further along. I think it would be challenging for a new believer, but not hard to understand either. It's not, it's not like he's writing in very heady language. But he gets at the heart of things. And every chapter, I love, I love this because he doesn't just want you to read his thoughts. In every chapter, there's nine questions, nine or ten questions. And the questions have to do with you going back to your Bible, reading it for yourself, answering the questions. So you can't read this without reading your Bible also. I love that. Because if you're telling me just reading someone's thoughts is enough, no, the Bible's it. It's the foundation. So, I'm recommending that as a starting point. So if you say, I evangelized someone at work, they got saved, they came to church, I'm done. I would say to you, you're not done. That was just step one. And I have an exemption form you could fill out from the IRS, but I hope you don't fill it out uh, because now you need to get with that person and begin discipling them. And if you say, I don't know enough to do that, I'm saying, here's a book that you can use. You know enough. You know enough. That's what I'm saying. So choose your study. Um, I, did, I was in a discipling relationship with a young man who was 20 years old in Watoma. And what we did, I'll just tell you what we did. We just picked First Thessalonians, and I, we just picked a section at a time, and, and we would read the section and write down questions we had about what was being said, observations. We'd sit down. Again, he was really busy. I was really busy. We were sitting down monthly. I'm saying probably I would do that differently if I was redoing it today. I'd probably meet every other week or every week. I think I'd prioritize it more than I did then. Again, I'm learning. Uh, but we met monthly, and we discussed what we were learning in First Thessalonians and then applying it to our life together. That's what we did. That's just all we did. So, so whether you want a book study or whether you just pick up your Bible and, and, and just assign sections, disciple, disciple. Schedule it as part D. Scheduling it's part D. Set a time and a place to meet. Set an ending date. With multiply, it's 24 sessions. You know, if, if you were meeting monthly, this is going to take two years. But all I had to say to that is, even though monthly is probably not as, as, as what I would do today if it was up to me, uh, going from nothing to something is awesome. That, that's all I have to say about that. It's like saying, I don't memorize verses because I, I can never do one a week. Well, then do one a month. Well, that's not enough, right? But how many are you doing right now? None. So one a month is pretty good then, right? Because it's not none. Okay, all right, all right. That's just how Satan works in my mind, just so you know. Like he says, you'll never be that good because you're not doing that enough. And I'm like, well, I'm starting here. Isn't that okay? I'm, I'm just taking a step like I know I'm supposed to. 
Um, this is 24, so when you're done with 24, if you, did, if you met every other week, twice a month, you could be done with this in a year. Think about a year of investing in somebody else. At the end of the year, you can call that, that relationship quits, or you can say, this is so good that we need to keep meeting. We need to keep meeting. And so you do it. All I can say is, the best, not, not every student that I saw graduate from youth ministry went on and kept the faith. I wish I could say that I, I don't know what the percentage was, but I can tell you that the ones that I, I try, many of the ones I tried to invest in personally, like on that level, are doing well and following the Lord and not because of me. That's what I want to say at the end here. The temptation is to say, ah, if we don't disciple, people are not going to follow Christ. They're going to walk away from him. I have a big enough view of God's sovereignty. I believe in the perseverance of the saints, you know, that once saved, always saved, and you will continue on in the faith. But I equally believe that we're supposed to encourage each other daily as long as it's called today so that we're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews chapter 2, I believe. Encourage each other, how often? Daily? So that we're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So God is saying, if you don't encourage each other, some people are going to get hardened and walk away. So God, it's on you in your sovereignty to keep me in the palm of your hand. It's on us as the church to invest in each other so that we stay in the palm of God's hand. How can both of those things be true at the same time? That's a paradox. And if that's something that, the, that, that that young guy wrote about in his blog, I don't like how the scripture contradicts itself, I can't help it. Because Philippians says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's on me. And then it says, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Oh, so you're actually telling me he's working in me to do those things that you're telling me that I'm supposed to do. It's both. We have a job to help people persevere in their faith. God has the ultimate responsibility as the sovereign Lord of the universe to help us grow and to be with us in that process and to keep us. Okay. Uh, lastly, so you set a schedule, keep your schedule. E, you do it again, you continue to multiply, multiply, multiply. So maybe you keep going or maybe you find some new people to invest in. I just think it would be so great if people pray to receive Christ in this, in, this, in this room and you've met them over coffee downstairs. You get to know who they are. You find out they're a newer believer and you say, can we meet? I mean, just, would you just think about, pray about maybe getting together every other week, once a month and let's grow together and see what they say? Because I can't make anyone fill out a connection card. But I think a lot of people would be honored for you to walk up to them and say, God's doing something here. I'd like to be a part of what he's doing in your life. I think that this process could be reproducible with marriages, right? Marriages. You're a married couple. Your marriage is solid, not perfect, but it's, it's, it's pretty solid. And you have some things to say to younger people that are married. I remember the first small group I was ever a part of as a married guy. I'm sitting with a group of married couples talking about marriage issues, and I'm watching this other couple that's been married longer than us, like fight, you know, conflict, work it through right there. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's, shouldn't do that in front of us all. I just can't, can't take that. You know, I don't, I don't ever be that, you know, but it's like we all do, we all know that we do conflict, and it's not always pretty. So walk with other married couples. Some, some of you have said to me, how do we invest in other married couples? One day, we might do an official church program out of this and try to make it very, uh, what would you say, intentional. If you're a negative person, you'd say we were forcing it on you. We don't want to do that. But, but like, make it church-wide. What I'm saying this morning is more... Uh, I want, I want this to infiltrate the church culture. You know, grassroots. You saying, how am I doing on the Great Commission? And having those words burn into your mind. Jesus said, make disciples. Who am I discipling? How's it going with your kids? 
Are your kids old enough you could use multiply, could use a different resource? I'm asking myself the same thing. How am I doing with my kids? I'm just really busy. But that's not good enough. That's not good enough of a reason not to do it. So this applies in a lot of different areas. Uh, oh, and last thing, and then I'll bring the worship team up for, for a last song. Uh, uh, love, I love Bill Allison. He's part of Cadre Ministries. Uh, he he uh, lives like five minutes from Chillicothe, Illinois, five minutes from my hometown. Great guy. He helps run Cadre Ministries. Andrew's in, Pastor Andrew's in a DLC, which is a discipleship learning community with other youth pastors, and that's part of their thing. So, so this guy is awesome. I've, I've been through his training before, and uh, he, he was sharing a story once, and I loved it. He was like, so his daughter's now dating age, and the young man's coming to her house, and he's thinking about what he's going to say to the young man, right? We've had, I've had these conversations with you before too, right? You know, so you get the gun out, and you're kind of looking at the gun. The young guy comes over to pick her up, and, and you want to scare him, right? And scare him, you should. But, but, um, Bill Allison says, he talks to the, he brings the young man into his office. Come in here, young guy. You want to date my daughter, you're going to meet with me and I'm going to disciple you. Whoa, you know, like, I mean, that's, that's pretty intense. That's, that's pretty cool, you know? So one day, Caitlin, I mean, one day. Uh, I just think that is creatively thinking through who we're investing in, who has God put on your heart in your life, and then doing something about it. I know I could talk about other parameters. You know, I could talk about, you know, if you're a single guy, you shouldn't be investing in a married woman, obviously. I mean, there's gender boundaries and common sense things there. But let's invest in people that God lays on our heart and see them grow in Christ. I'm not saying it's a church-wide, we're signing you up now on the dotted line. I'm saying, would you consider it, pray about it, and realize this is the great commission. I also think small groups are play a big part of that, our community groups too, which is why we're trying to build those up and helping disciple other people. But I'm trying to give you another tool in your toolbox to do this well. Worship team, would you come up? Let's pray. Father, uh, I just know we need to get really good at making disciples, Lord, because that's what you've called us to do. That should be our heartbeat, our goal, and so I, I don't know what these words that, that, that you have in your scripture will do this morning, but I pray that you take these words, however they go out, and, and use them. And use them. We don't think it's any accident that Jesus invested in people the way that he did. I just pray we'd do it like he did it. And I pray we'd see fruit. I pray we'd see lives transformed so that you get glory. In Jesus' name, amen.